Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Every minute of the war between Israel and Hamas, there is the possibility of an event that will draw in many other countries in the Middle East and spark a much wider and deadlier conflict. The place where this is most likely to happen is Lebanon. And I'm lucky enough to know two people who I can ask about what is happening in the country at this very moment. Kim Gattis has lived in Lebanon most of her life. She was born there and still lives in Beirut. She spent time in America covering the State Department for the BBC during the Obama administration and wrote a book about it, The Secretary, a journey with Hillary Clinton from Beirut to the heart of American power. Robin Lustig spent more than three decades as the main presenter of several BBC radio news programs, The World Tonight and NewsHour. But before that, he was the Observer newspaper's Middle East correspondent. We recorded our conversation on November 1st, three and a half weeks after Hamas's brutal sneak attack initiated this round of war. And I began by asking Kim Gattis what the situation was like on the ground in Lebanon at this particular moment. It's been very tense, Michael, ever since the attack of October 7th by by Hamas, because I think the ramifications of that were pretty immediately clear. Well, I should correct that. I don't think they were immediately clear, because I think it took everybody, even in Israel, a day to fully understand the extent of what had happened. The images were still coming through. It was quite incredible, shocking. Um, the idea that the next morning we woke up and there were still raging battles, that it wasn't under control yet. Then all the images you know, started, started coming out. I think by Monday, people realized that this had consequences. This could have consequences for, for Lebanon as well. And no one knew at that time whether this speak of unification of fronts that Hezbollah and Iran have been talking about, and we can get into that, what that meant exactly. Because in a way, we've been here before. In 2006, uh, the um, the Israelis killed a Hamas or Islamic Jihad militant. Hamas kidnapped an Israeli soldier, and that launched a war between Hamas and Gaza. And to provide support for Hamas, Hezbollah on the Lebanon border kidnapped Israeli soldiers, thinking it would just be that. It would just be a limited operation on the border. And they could negotiate something in return for releasing the Israeli soldiers. And instead, uh, Israel launched a devastating attack on Lebanon, not not just Hezbollah, but Lebanon. 1,200 civilians died, civilian infrastructure was targeted. And so in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attack on Israel, <clears throat> and with the words unification of France in the background, people started leaving South Lebanon quite quickly. Villages emptied, people went north because they, they thought war is imminent. And in a way, War has already started on the border between Lebanon and Israel because there have been daily clashes and there have been casualties on both sides, including 47 Hezbollah militants, which is quite a high number for such a low-level war, if we can call it that so far. And um, so if we want to be purely 
analytical sort of cold observers based on my analysis and my conversations with diplomats, Western diplomats, Arab officials, it's clear that Hezbollah doesn't want to escalate too much, but they want to show that they're helping Hamas. Hamas has complained that they're not getting the backup they were hoping for from Hezbollah. And the Iranians have signaled to Arab countries that they're also not looking to escalate. But the terror, the sheer terror of people in Lebanon waiting every day, wondering whether there's going to be war, is really quite something. Um, I feel somewhat, I don't want to say immune to it, but I, I've, like so many of us in this country, I've been through so much. I grew up mostly in a shelter in the civil war. I've been through all sorts of invasions, the Syrian army, the Israeli army, the Palestinians, more wars, more assassinations, uprisings, etc. That it must be some kind of trauma reaction that I feel quite calm and chill, uh, aside from the outrage at what we're seeing, but in terms of my own person in, in Beirut, where, where I stand. But around me, it's, 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 um, it's close to hysteria. Uh, and it's painful to watch as well. And it's caused not just by the reality of was it unfolding now, but because of layers of trauma of people living through this again and again um, in, in Lebanon. People have left the country, taken their kids out of school, left southern Lebanon, flights have been canceled. You know, the country's on hold, in limbo, waiting to see what is Hezbollah going to do. Robin, go ahead. Tim, I just wanted to focus on something you said uh, during the course of your remarks there. We've been here before, because I think one of the things that took a couple of days to sink in, and I'd be interested whether this is the case in Lebanon as elsewhere, was that the scale of mm. this Hamas mm. action was unlike anything we have seen before. Uh, and I think it, it was almost beyond imagination that Hamas would be able to launch an operation of the complexity of the daring of the brutality uh, which we saw unfold on the 7th of October. And I think, I mean, everything you've described about what Lebanon has been through and indeed what Palestinians have been through during previous outbreaks of hostilities, the Israeli reaction has always been fearsome, even when the Hamas action was microscopic compared to what occurred on 7th of October. So I would imagine that one of the reasons why people are so apprehensive is that the scale of the Hamas brutality, the scale of the Hamas daring, if you want to use that word, is so off the scale that they really cannot begin to imagine what the Israeli response might be. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, and I should perhaps caveat my, we've been here before, um, because what we saw coming out of this attack on seventh uh, on the seventh of October is unlike anything, you know, we've we've seen by Hamas, and it and it's a particular combination of factors that allowed this somehow to to happen. But in terms of why I say we've been here before, it's sort of the um, it's the waiting for war and then having to deal with war and having to relive trauma that I'm referring to. We're so trained for it. It's awful. 
everybody has their backup plan, a house in the mountains, a relative who's got a spare room, a passport to leave. Uh, don't forget that this country has just been through and is still going through three years of a tremendous, uh, devastating economic crisis. And in 2020, went through the devastating uh, Beirut port blast, which was the largest non-nuclear explosion um, in modern history. So our nerves are, are frayed. And I think that possibly, but I don't know, even if the October 7th attack had not been large and, and horrific as we as we saw, but had been smaller, more within the, if we can call it that, parameters of past Hezbollah action, of past Hamas action, but there had been an Israeli reaction and there had been some cross-border uh, uh, fire on southern on the border in, in southern Lebanon, I think you would have still seen people leave in, in droves because they remember 2006. So that's the the baseline. And now, of course, yes, they, they realize that um, the reaction could be much, much bigger. However, because the Hamas attack was so... I mean, I don't even know how to describe it anymore, really. We, we're, we've run out of words. The reaction by the world was also different, right? And the Biden administration is going to get so much criticism and is getting so much criticism for the bear hug that President Biden gave Benjamin Netanyahu. And some of the statements that are being made at the podium at the White House are, you know, really uh, problematic. Um, and that's an understatement. You know, when the spokesperson says calls for a ceasefire are morally repugnant, you know, civilians are dying. So a call for a ceasefire is a natural human reaction. But what I also see happening in the background of the US reaction is a real all hands on deck effort to rein in Israel's revenge uh, reflexes. You know, it's really interesting, Kim, your colleague, you you do a lot of writing for the Financial Times and your colleague Ed Luce today writes that, writes about the bear hug. Mm -hmm. um, And and he tweeted out his article and I quipped, hug your, friends close hug your enemies closer mm, mm. and i do wonder if the bear hug is about some somewhere along the line we'll get around to talking about how israel is going to learn what being a client state means um i think that that's probably going to come sooner rather than later mm. because there will be no end without that and the us will have there to there has been already with. a lot of pressure and one of the things that has been avoided, I think, is a an immediate regional conflagration. Because the Israelis wanted to carry out a preemptive strike against Lebanon, which the Americans said no to. My understanding is that very early on, they wanted to try to push two million Palestinians into Egypt. That's still being discussed. But again, my understanding is that the Egyptians, for many reasons, said, you do this, it's war. And that's one of the things that President Biden was keen to diffuse as well, this idea that there would be population transfer. 
And then the idea that the Israelis just wanted to, you know, carpet bomb the whole of Gaza and have a massive ground incursion is also something that the Americans said, hold on just one minute. What what is the plan now? You know, they're still heavily bombing Gaza, the most intense bombing of the century. And more children have died in Gaza in just three weeks than have died in all conflicts combined since 2019. That's quite the number. And I find it difficult, again, to hear American officials and President Biden say that the numbers of casualties from Gaza are not reliable. Yes, Hamas is in charge of a lot in Gaza, of the ministry. That's just how Gaza is run. But in the past, UN organizations and NGOs have checked these tallies and they they converge. So there is no real reason to doubt. You know, I don't want to sound flippant, but we are talking about several thousand. And I don't want to say that another thousand is not as bad as 1,000 less, but we're talking about several thousand at least. And once we get into denying the other side's uh, pain and suffering and casualties, there's no end to it. Because I can assure you that people in the Arab world are also doubting the numbers coming out of Israel. 1,400? Impossible. The Israelis are inflating it. They wanted to cause a war. And anyway, they were all soldiers, so they were fair target. We can't play this game on either side. You've touched on something that really matters a lot to me here, which is this continued inability of people on both sides of this wretched conflict to recognize that the other side is experiencing pain and trauma. And it seems to me that one of the constants throughout this long, awful history of the conflict is that neither side is prepared to recognize that the legacy of trauma exists on the other side. And what has been so distressing about so much of the commentary since the Hamas attack on 7th of October is the way in which it has almost entirely been binary. One one is expected to take a side. One either believes everything that Israel says and believes that Israel is justified in doing everything it is doing, or conversely, one believes that Israel somehow is a culprit in this, that nothing that it does is justified, and that Hamas, despite everybody, of course, condemning the brutality of the attack on 7th of October, somehow it can be justified as part of a sort of anti-colonial, anti-settler struggle. And um, I, I, I always remember something that an Israeli official said to me many, many years ago, who'd been very involved in the Oslo peace process. And when it was becoming clear that that process was not going to go anywhere, he said, this will not end until all of us on both sides get tired of killing each other's children. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to me that what we're seeing again now is that we are nowhere near that point. Yitzhak Rabin, when he was asked about why he engaged in Oslo, and Rabin was a a very hard man who had no particular love for Palestinian, the Palestinians or their cause. He said, I got tired of breaking bones. This was after the infamous photos of Israeli soldiers breaking a kid's arms, throwing stones at them in the West Bank. And he said, I've got tired of breaking bones. And so he was willing to engage in Oslo. It does come back to an exhaustion. The problem with this moment is that it feels very much like there's 
hydrogen uh, fusion going on uh, in Gaza and Israel at the moment and has a long way. And in the way. world, really. And in, in the, the world. world. I mean, all the way to U.S. campuses and London protests, etc. But you know, I, I want to go back to the region and and the U.S. and what and the efforts it's it's making to try to diffuse things and where we might be going. But I'm very curious what what you and and Robin think about why it's so binary at the moment. I've been struggling with that. I mean, why is it so binary? Is it just a continuation of all the binary conversations we've been having about climate change, COVID, Trump? Is, is it all sort of now? pouring into this one conflict. I, I think well. you're onto something there, Kim. I think that discourse, public discourse, you know, since the since social media was invented and particularly Twitter, where, you know, this is where I get my news, it's where I contacted you in order to set up this conversation. In 240 characters, all you can do is be binary. And that feeds into this. And you know, the other thing is that too much of it, uh, Robin, you can join in in a second. I, I also think that too much of this is carried on in undergraduate terms and 18 year olds, 19 year olds, 20 year olds see politics in binary terms. You know, you know I was rereading the bad guys. I, I was rereading the other day accounts of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Mm. Now, that was a long time ago. That was 40 years ago. But the US's public posture then, and this was the Reagan administration, was very different. Mm -hmm. Reagan was very critical right from the outset almost of what Israel was doing in Lebanon, and particularly, of course, after the Sabra Shatila massacres and uh, the uh, allegations against Ariel Sharon, and the, then the uh, commission that the Israelis set up to look into what had happened then, it, it, it's like reading about an entirely different world. Now, I, I absolutely acknowledge 40 years ago is a long time. There are one, if not two generations of people, both in Israel and in Lebanon, who will have no direct memory of what happened then. But the international posture of people towards what was happening then was so different. And I think, Michael, you're right. I mean, I think that the, the Twitterization of um, political discourse is part of the reason. But I do also wonder whether it's one of the legacies of 9-11 I think one can divide sort of international politics and international diplomacy into pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Because 9-11 was such a trauma for the United States, for the most powerful nation on earth, the biggest economy, the biggest military, and because of the way in which the US reacted to that, and because, again, the heinous nature of those attacks by al-Qaeda was so clear, People didn't then find it difficult to take sides, at least in the immediate aftermath. Al-Qaeda obviously had done something absolutely unconscionable. And I wonder whether that just encouraged people to see the world as divided into goodies and baddies. You can see it again with Russia, Ukraine. People take sides. Nobody is prepared to accept complexities. Nobody is prepared to accept shades of grey. What is depressing is that that includes politicians, that includes the people who actually can make a difference. And uh, as Kim was saying, the rhetoric coming out of Washington, the rhetoric coming out of Israel is really blood curdling and very dangerous. It has real effects on the ground. 
Uh, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that people have already died as a direct result mm. of what some politicians have said. Uh, and I just wish that uh, politicians were made of uh, tougher stuff and could ignore the Twitterization of public discourse and uh, recognize and try to teach the voters that uh, the world is not divided into black and white. It's a, just one historical yeah. point. Reagan did take a different approach. And then he did send the Marines in, and not a, as an invasion force, but as a kind of peacekeeping, peacekeeping force, force. And they were blown up. 230, 250 One, were, were, were killed in, in 1983. And the French as and, well. Part of and the so national this, force. The, and this was a trauma which actually my, my memory is the U.S., so long as Reagan was president, tried to just not pay attention. We just we don't want to be bothered with what happens there because because it's too deadly. And... Which then raises the question as to whether the, the, the talk which we're now beginning to hear of some kind of international force going into Gaza is just uh, so much pie in the sky, because as you say, Michael, you know, they're, they're, you know they're, 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 they're floundering. Kim, you know, you, I, I, I want the... to I want to pause here just just for a second, because all of this is giving me I mean, not to sort of belabor the point of we've been here before, but in many ways, I feel we have again. Well, you were a kid. This is all. This. I, I was a kid. But I'm, I have very vivid memories of the Israeli invasion because we lived really in a terrible neighborhood. We were on the front line. We were in a kind of a no man's land between East and West. Every single invading army came through our neighborhood. So we had to flee. Uh, but also it so happens that I am researching that period for my next book. So I am deep in the weeds and I feel doubly traumatized because I've just sat through hours of documentaries about Lebanon and all the massacres that happened and the invasions and the bodies and, you know, Sabra and Shatila and other massacres and now dealing with this. So I wrote a piece for the Financial Times two, three days after October 7th saying, you know, we should heed the lessons of 1982 because Ariel Sharon had initially said he was just going to clean up South Lebanon and go up to, you know, uh, I think 25 kilometers in or something by uh, the Litani the, River. Uh, the Litani it? River, exactly. Um, and instead, with a nod and a wing from the Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, at the, at the time, he went all the way up to Beirut because he had grand plans. He too wanted to change the Middle East, just as Bibi Netanyahu announced you know, on the 8th or the 9th of uh, of October, that this was going to change the Middle East. And the and, language and, was very similar, wasn't it? Cleansing terrorists. Yes, cleansing terrorists and laying siege to Beirut. No food, no water, no fuel. Uh, 34 days, I believe, if not if not longer. And the idea was that, you know, he could, uh, Ariel Sharon would um, push out the PLO and they did leave by ship in August, by August, after a devastating siege on, on Beirut, that, you know, Lebanon would then bring about a more friendly uh, president to power. And it did, a Christian president who came from the Christian phalange militias that had been allied with the Israelis and armed by the Israelis. And then Israel could then sign some kind of peace agreement or security agreement with Lebanon bring Syria to its knees by bombing the troops it has in uh, it had positioned in Lebanon, weakening Syria and bring it to the table as well. 
and, uh, you know, make peace and forget about the Palestinians, completely ignore that, and everybody would live happily ever after. Instead, what happened? Eventually, you could argue that the eviction of the PLO from Lebanon and their uh, exile to Tunis and then leads to the second intifada in, in the West Bank and um, and Gaza, which gives rise to Hamas. But more importantly, two days after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards get on a plane from Tehran, the newly formed Islamic Republic. They fly to Syria and then they come, they travel onwards to Lebanon to launch war against Israel from Lebanon. And they realize that actually the Syrians are keen, but not too keen. And so they don't want to have a full-on conflict. They don't want to give them tanks and field hospitals and jets. So they come up with the idea of asymmetric warfare and they form Hezbollah. And Syria, which is totally weakened at the time because they've lost so much military hardware and I think even soldiers, bide their time. They promise that they will support the security agreement between Lebanon and Israel. And then as soon as the Soviets start arming them again and the Syrians feel that they're back in the saddle and they're working together with the Iranians, they say, oh, no, actually, we're not going to support the security agreement between Israel and, and Lebanon. And it unravels completely from then. And in the middle of that, you have the Marines showing up and the French showing up, not quite realizing how the sands are shifting. One of the comparisons I try to make when I grapple with what people always tend to ask me, so how do you think this should end? Mm. Um, I try to draw parallels both with Northern Ireland and with South Africa, both of them deep-seated conflicts between two people with rival claims to land, which were more or less eventually resolved. But it seems to me the big difference between what happened in Northern Ireland and South Africa and what is happening now in the Middle East is that in your region, Kim, there are other powers in play. Yeah. There are neighbours yeah. with interests who are meddling to the continued detriment of the people who live and try to bring up families uh, in Lebanon or in Gaza or on the West Bank. And so that does raise the question, uh, you were talking about Syria in Lebanon in the 1980s, it raises the question of Iran now, both in Lebanon and indeed in Gaza and Iranian influence. And uh, one of the questions which I've really grappled with, and I can't find an answer, is what is Iran's end game here? What, what does Iran want to come out of this? Obviously, a weaker Israel is very much in its interests as it sees it. A stronger Hamas presumably is also in Iran's interest. And um, an end to any talk of rapprochement between more Gulf states, Saudi Arabia uh, and Israel. But does it go beyond that? Well, Kim, Kim's last book, mm. which was a New York Times notable book when it came out, it was three years ago, Black yep. Wave, yep. deals with, with this question to a considerable degree, doesn't it, Kim? It, it does. It does. Um, although I don't go into the Arab-Israeli conflict that much. I wanted really to focus just on Saudi Arabia and Iran because we often ignore their own agency in shaping the um, the course of, of, of history. Um, it's always all been about the Arab-Israeli conflict or it's all America's fault or etc., I have to say, though, that uh, researching this next book has 
brought me back to the idea that the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict remains very much central to it all and to the future of this region. But Robin, I think that to answer your question, first we need to clarify a few points. One is Iran has proxies and allies and client groups, and they're in different categories. Hezbollah is the closest you could get to an equal partner to Tehran and the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guards regional uh, uh, expeditionary force, if you will. And I think they make decisions together at this point. They don't just get orders from Tehran for Hezbollah. Hamas is a bit different. Hamas is a Sunni group. Iran is a dominantly Shia group. And although my whole book, Black Wave, is about dispelling some of that idea that everything is about Sunnis and Shias and they've been killing each other forever, those sensitivities, a little bit like, I don't know, Protestants and Catholics, still come up in the course of things. And the relationship between Hamas and Iran has been very difficult over the last 10 years because of the war in Syria, where Iran, a dominantly Shia country, backed a minority president as he killed the majority of Sunnis in his country, or as he killed people in his country, which is dominantly Sunni, right? Um, And there was a break in relations with Iran and with Syria, and they only reconnected about a year ago for this unification of of fronts. So I think that's an important um, uh, nuance to to understand about the relationship Mm. between Iran and, and these groups. The second thing that has become apparent uh, in my conversations as well with people in the region is that while Iran may have provided a blanket approval for Hamas to carry out attacks against Israel, or not necessarily blanket approval, but there's a general understanding that, yes, when we provide weapons to Hamas, when we train some of their people, when we provide money, Hamas will attack Israel. There was a general understanding. It doesn't appear to me that Iran or Hezbollah were aware of the extent of the operation that Hamas Mm -hmm. was going to carry out. And to be fair, or to be not fair, but to to be to to sort of take things uh, further in the analysis, and that's not to justify anything that Hamas did. I don't think they realized how far they were going to get because they were ready for tough battle, days of um, hunkering down and drawn out conf- uh, 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 b- battle with, with soldiers. And instead, they found that Israel's defenses were completely down and they were just able to proceed and, and go as far or quite far in, into Israel. And again, my understanding uh, from my sources is that some people close to Hezbollah, Hamas, were shocked by the images. Not because maybe they didn't feel sorry, but they realized what this was going to mean, that this was beyond anything they'd seen. And Hezbollah has generally been disciplined about how it carries out its attacks, and it tries to limit itself to military targets. 
when it's carrying out operations. Of course, it lobs rockets across the border and it kills civilians again uh, in, in Israel. But in terms of military operations, they've, mm. they've never carried out anything like, like Hamas has done. They've done this kind of stuff in Syria as they're fighting to protect uh, Bashar al-Assad. And that's been also savagery heightened by the use of drugs like Captagon, which now, you know, Semaphore has a story saying, you know, it looks like there is evidence that some of these Hamas militants were also high on Captagon, which is an amphetamine that, you know, props up your your energy and keeps you going and makes you think you're you're invincible. And manufactured in Syria. Manufactured in Syria and uh, and, you know, with with Iran's uh, assistance, etc. But to go to the question of what is Iran's end goal? You know what is Iran's end goal? Regime survival. Hmm. Regime survival. Their agenda is pushing back against American influence, weakening Israel, uh, showing themselves to be the real leaders of the Muslim world and the uh, supporters of the Palestinian cause. But the real end goal is regime survival. And I think actually... That's why things have not escalated, because they know that if it escalates, their own survival is at stake, because it's a febrile country that has seen a lot of protests over the last few years, not just last year with the Mahsa Amini protests and the Women Life Freedom Movement. But over the last few years, since 2017, there's been repeated cycles of protests. So... The Iranians are playing a very complex, dangerous game here where they want to tease and push and use violence and deploy their proxies just enough to provoke, but not enough to justify a full-fledged conflagration or Israeli retaliation. But that's really playing with, with fire. Kim, what do you make of the uh, the messaging from Washington to Tehran, both in public and presumably also in private? Because, I mean, I entirely take on board what you say about the public rhetoric from President Biden and other senior officials, which, you know, to my ears has been grotesquely over the top and non-empathetic. However, I do wonder whether perhaps they deserve some credit for having made it clear to Iran where the lines are drawn, and in having involved other powers in the region, I'm thinking particularly, of course, of Qatar, perhaps also Turkey, um, Egypt, I don't know to what extent, but it, it does seem to me at least arguable that US diplomacy so far, and obviously this story is far from ended, so far has been quite successful in preventing this already uh, escalating into a regional conflagration um, I mean, like everybody, I am absolutely appalled by the pictures that we see coming out of Gaza as a result of Israeli military operations there. But, you know, the fact that the northern border of Israel, the border with Lebanon, uh, has not exploded in the way that some people feared it would. Um, there are real worries, I know, about what's happening on the West Bank and settler activity there that seems to be going pretty much unchecked. But do you do you accept that American diplomacy could be said already to have had some successes? Is success uh, the lack of, uh, of, con of, of regional conflagration? I guess you could put it like that. But, you know, it's not just about what we don't see. Mm. It's also about what we do see. Mm. And 
the Israeli campaign against Gaza has come at a terrible price. So I would see that as a terrible failure of of everybody, of the international community, of Hamas, of the Arab countries, of Israel, of, you know, of, of humanity. It's um, it's beyond um, it's it's beyond words uh, to think that, you know, over you know, several thousand children have been killed. It's it's just it's it's hard to then accept that American diplomacy is being successful, even though as a as an analyst I can I can I can see how that is true. But it's still it's still very hard. Um I also understand that the Israelis are not listening and quote unquote obeying everything the Americans tell them, right? And so from my experience covering the State Department, I also know that American officials, and particularly the president, avoid making statements in public, Mm. calling on their allies to do X or Y, if the ally is not ready to do X or Y, because then it looks like you're having a public spat. And then you can't speak to your ally in private and counsel and advise and say, you know, trust us, we've got your back, but we really need you to do this or that. And so I guess that the Israelis are not ready for a ceasefire. And also, to be fair, um, I don't think it's enough to just call for a ceasefire because there was a ceasefire on the 6th of October. And it was broken by Hamas, right? Exactly so. So I can understand also the argument of people who say, well, a ceasefire alone isn't going to be enough. I wouldn't call it repugnant like... Um, this White House spokesperson did because that's just a very strange statement that you could be called repugnant for calling to save lives, human lives. But I understand that it needs to be coupled with other things. The release of all the Israeli hostages, or if not all of them, at least the civilian ones. Um, If not all the civilian ones, at least the women and children. You know, we need to start somewhere. And we need humanitarian aid to come into Gaza as quickly as possible. One of the things which I think quite a lot of people find difficult to understand is um, the fact that Robin's Israel... taken over, Michael. Robin's I just told taken him, over. I, well, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's the habit. He only had 35 years presenting you know, presenting news programs at the BBC. It's a hard habit to break. He's go ahead, so Robin. good at it. I shan't say another word. No, go ahead. Get in. I, I, no, just, um, I have a question, but you go first. All right, just just briefly, uh, Israel has a well-deserved reputation for very, very skilled special forces operations. Over many, many years, there have been targeted assassinations of several Hamas leaders. Uh, There are people, I think, who find it extraordinary that on this occasion, Israel has decided to adopt an entirely different military strategy, which is this all-out attack from the air and now also on the ground, Uh, which inevitably kills huge numbers of civilians. Why not continue with its previous policy of going for the people it believes to be responsible for the atrocity that happened on October the 7th? Why not take out the leaders, which it has been able to do in the past? Can it not do that anymore? Who knows? I mean, I think think this goes back to my question very nicely, or I'll make it go back to my question, because I know how to do a segue. Look, you know, this is this is goes back to the idea of 1982 and invading Lebanon. It isn't about taking out the leadership of Hamas. Mm. It would be 
I mean, they could send a hit squad to Qatar tomorrow and, and start assassinating the leadership in their villas in Qatar if they wanted to. I think they probably could. But mind you, they tried that once this, in Jordan and it didn't work. This is about eliminating the organization down to its roots, which means within the people and forcing it away. And when Kim was talking earlier, uh, we, we all were about 1982. And the idea was, we're going to force the PLO out, which ultimately they did. And then they carried on to Beirut and completely um, uh, changed all of Lebanon in so doing, the Israeli army did. But I think that is really what the Israelis seem to want to be doing. They somehow think they can repeat a scene of Yasser Arafat getting mm -hmm. on a boat with a thousand top fighters and sailing to Tripoli. And that's the end of the problem. The, the difference, I think, and, and Kim can correct me, is that the PLO, because it was a secular kind of leftist nationalist organization, is completely different than Hamas, which is an Islamist group um, consistently welcomes the idea of martyrdom and would happily die and, and take Samson-like in Gaza as many people along with them as they w could. So it's a, a, it's a misreading of the history here. There's no analogy, really, between the PLO and Hamas, is there? Um. No, I mean they're very different in 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 many ways. But you know, remember the PLO also carried out you know quite a bit of uh, quite a few terror attacks from hijackings to uh, the Olympics in Munich to yes, but but they're uh, they weren't they weren't dedicated to suicide or I mean or or they didn't no that think concept of... didn't exist then uh, at the time in the Palestinian struggle. That's something that Hezbollah and the Iranians uh, brought in. But I think it's also important to point out here that Hamas's best ally has been Bibi Netanyahu. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's something that, you know, I keep reading about it and I keep thinking, how is this possible? But it's possible. You know, there is no way that Hamas gets access to, to money via Qatar without Israel's approval. And Hamas and and um, uh, Netanyahu has apparently said it on the record around, uh, or has said it to people around him that you know our best ally in you know killing the idea of a two-state solution is Hamas, and that has been an Israeli tactic for so long to divide and rule, right? So the comparison with with 1982 yes only goes so far but it is very apt in the sense that you know you can get rid of the plo you'll get something else you'll get rid of that something else you'll get yet another iteration so you can get rid of hamas maybe they can get militants to leave gaza and go into exile somewhere but you will get hamas 2.0 what we need is a discussion about the core of the subject of the matter, which is occupation of Palestinian territories. And there needs to be a political horizon for the Palestinians and eventually a two-state solution. I think, you know, people will tell you that's dead in the water. 
Well, so is the one state solution. No one's going to go for that now. So what are the options? We you know we can't keep going like this with these cycles of uh, of violence. And that is, again, you know, the great failing of the international community and the Arab world to think that you could sort of just ignore the Palestinian problem and they'll they'll be fine and, uh, you know, we'll just have peace around them and they'll come along. No, because they're dealing also now with the most right-wing Israeli government that is pouring oil on the fire. Even now, as we speak, settlers in the West Bank, you know, no holds barred anymore. They're just going, going at it. And that's really explosive. I mean, I'm almost more worried about, um, you know, what might happen from the consequences of further actions in the West Bank than uh, reactions to what's happening in, in Gaza. You know, we need to keep an eye on what's happening in the West Bank. And, you know, uh, it's a good thing that, you know, the White House has been quite firm about the need to rein in the settlers and the EU even used the word terror uh, when describing what the settlers were were doing. And so, um, you know, we can talk about Hamas, what do you do about them? What about the future of Gaza? That's all for the short, medium term. But in the medium, long term, we need to address what is an injustice, which is the continued occupation of the Palestinian people. And it does seem to me you raise a very interesting point there, Kim, when you talk about the uh, diplomatic maneuvers around the Palestinians and ignoring the Palestinians, the various accords that have been signed between Israel and different Arab states without any buy-in from the Palestinians, without any consideration for Palestinian interests, I think inevitably, for those of us who've been following this for a very long time, was going to lead to something along these lines. You cannot say to a community, to the Palestinian people, you no longer matter, you don't have any rights, we will continue as if you don't exist. I mean, it buys into an old sort of piece of Israeli propaganda, doesn't it, that there is no such thing as the Palestinian people. And the fact that an increasing number of Gulf states and indeed North African states, Arab states, were prepared, it would seem, to go along with that and in their own interests to sign up deals with Israel, which they think will be good for them and their people, ignoring the Palestinians, was bound to have this effect. So if anything good is going to come out of this appalling tragedy, maybe it will put an end to that mindset that you can somehow bring peace to the region by ignoring the Palestinians. I mean, it obviously has never been true, and it's obviously less true now than it ever was. I, I just want to jump in and tell this story from April 2001. This was just at the beginning of the Second Intifada, and Ariel Sharon had just been uh, replaced, Ehud Barak, as prime minister, elected. And I was on Al-Wad Street in Jerusalem, which is the main drag that runs from the Damascus Gate down to the wall. When you say street, it's an exaggeration. It's a very wide pedestrian alley. And there was an Arab shopkeeper there, and I was talking to him. And because of the Intifada, there'd been a catastrophic drop in um, tourism. And we, he was complaining about business being terrible. And then out of nowhere, he said, where are the Arab armies? Mm -hmm. When will they be coming? 
And this was 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I, how could I explain to him that, you know, Egypt made a separate peace in the 1970s. Jordan followed suit. The Arab armies are not coming. You mm. will have to find your own accommodation if it's possible. Now, this was, by then, Oslo was already falling apart. It had been killed in its cradle by Jewish extremists who assassinated Yitzhak Rabin and committed the atrocity at uh, the Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron, um, which set off that catastrophic bout of terrorism that led to the f election first of Bibi Netanyahu, briefly Barak, and then Sharon, and where we are today. And I just think that sometimes both sides have to have their own agency in this. They are client states. As I said earlier, I think Israel's a client state of America. I'm not, a, you know, and the Palestinians are constantly looking for Yes, but, but they are the occupied people. They are occupied. Right? But so so in they the, don't have an army. They don't have, I mean, they're, they're the weaker But I, I, party what I'm talking here. about is an intellectual agency um, that just is in the region, the two sides ultimately. You know, both. You know, I, I don't pretend to understand what it's like to have been kicked out of my home for, you know, 75 years ago and living in dispossession since, since then. You know, I have a lot of Palestinian friends. Um, I've been into the Palestinian camps a lot. It's it's a life of despair, of dispossession. They're unwanted in many of their host countries. They're much more assimilated in 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 Jordan, but they've been bombed to death now in Syria by Bashar al-Assad. I have Palestinian friends who've uh, integrated, um, married into Lebanese society who are incredibly cosmopolitan, well-adjusted, well-traveled, uh, lived in the U.S. for a while, have foreign passports. But the, the, the wound of having lost their home, having, having, of, of having had to get on a boat at age five in the middle of the night from Haifa to go somewhere, wherever, and land in Lebanon in a refugee camp, and then figure out a way up in, in society. They were among the lucky ones. You know, what kind of agency do you have? You're, no one listens to you. You're, you know, you're... I, I think you're misunderstanding what I mean by that. I think that in the end, it has to be just the two together without yes. all the outside pressures and without, you know, that uh, when we were talking earlier in the conversation about South Africa and Northern Ireland... I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland during that end phase. In the end, for all of the external pressures or turning to outsiders in the diaspora for help, in the end, it was only because the people inside the six counties decided they, and actually within, within the Catholic community, the Republicans and the uh, nationalists had to decide we won't accuse you of being a sellout mm. their strength made it possible to deal directly with the other side in the end I, I do think that it comes down to just israelis and palestinians and sadly i mean this is what happened this is what happened with oslo i mean they made use of the secrecy afforded them by the norwegians but truly if it it has to come down mm. 
I'm, I'm I, preaching. I, I, agree. I, I, I don't like to preach, but I mean, <laughs> you know, as you know, Robin and I are diaspora Jews and we have this emotional connection, even though, frankly, we're, you know, I'm not an Israeli. I'm just not mm, in, in, in any cultural sense. But, you know, you think as someone who's covered conflict resolution, I say all the great power or regional power stuff is irrelevant. In the end, it has to come from leaders within the two societies. And that's I where you have the biggest problem though. today. I think that's a big problem today because it's not going to be Bibi Netanyahu and it's not going to be Mahmoud Abbas. Absolutely. And and so so I, we have we have an immediate problem. I know. Um, and but but I, I want to say one thing. I've always thought that as well, that it has to come from the two sides. And that's the American line as well, right? We can't want it more than them. But I think, uh, you know, I'm probably contradicting myself now because at the beginning of our conversations, I said you can't just, you know, tell some, uh, tell Israel, do this and they'll do it. But but in this case, I kind of think, you know, at some point, you've got to lock them up in a room and and make it happen. But I do think as well that at this moment, there is a new element in the equation for the first time, which is the prospect of Saudi-Israeli normalization. So we've just been saying that you can't have all, all these normalization talks and the Abraham Accords without dealing with the issue at the heart of, of the matter, which is Palestinian um, uh, uh, desire for self-determination. But the Saudis have actually held off on finalizing normalization talks with the Israelis because they kept saying we need something for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that initially they were thinking we can just get the bare minimum. But as you as we were just saying, um, that's no longer going to cut it today. And so they have an opportunity to say to Israel, whoever, because I don't think it's going to be possible with Netanyahu or to tell the Americans, look, we're willing, we're ready for this relationship with the Israelis to be public. This is the jackpot for Israel, but they've got to be willing to give something uh, substantial. And I think that's the core of the conversation that are the conversations that are going to be had and that are maybe already being had now. I might be too optimistic, but um, I've, I know from senior Saudi officials that they've not given up on, on normalization. We heard uh, the Saudi foreign minister, uh, Saudi defense minister in in um, um, uh, in in Washington, Khalid bin uh, bin Salman. He was just there. We we saw the readout from from the White House. They were talking about the need to look at long term long term solutions, and I think Saudi Arabia has an opportunity to uh, deliver something. But I think, Michael, your point about agency and people on the ground have to be in the forefront of moves away from this cycle. Um, one cannot ignore the depths of the pain on on each side. On each I side. mean, the people of Gaza, as Kim has been saying, have, have been living with this pain for generations now. The people of Israel, most of whom have been brought up on stories of, and in some cases, memories of, the Holocaust, uh, now have October the 7th as a new yeah. atrocity scarred into their psyche. 1,400 people, 
massacred in the space of a few hours. The, in my reading at least, the depths of that pain and the trauma which comes from that pain makes it impossible for people to say, oh, we'll put all that to one side and we'll start talking peace. That pain is so raw and so deep. Um, my reading, particularly of people who've been living in the Gaza Strip, is that what they want more than anything is to inflict as much pain on the people they see as their enemy as has been inflicted on them, because they see the disparity of power, they see the disparity of arms, and all they have is their ability to blow people up, to shoot them, and to create pain. And that is deeply, deeply depressing. And one of the reasons I found the whole of the last three weeks so very, very difficult is that um, I, I don't see a way out of it, at least in the in the medium term. I, I agree that the immediate future looks very bleak, very binary. No one is able to acknowledge at the moment, or very few are able to acknowledge the other side's pain. As I said, you know, people telling me, oh, it's not true, 1400, it's fake. Um, you know, the Israelis must have done it because of all those, all those crazy, crazy ideas. Um, and, and equally, you know, you hear Israelis, Israeli officials talk about Palestinians as, uh, as animals, which is, you know, really quite, quite shocking. But I take heart from the voices of those who are still saying we, we need to find a way to live together uh, on this land. And rather amazingly, a lot of these voices have been the relatives of those killed or kidnapped on October 7th who are saying, not in our name, not in our name. We need to find a way forward. There is so much pain. I think in the week following um, the October 7th uh, attack, I was you know, reading the news in the morning and I was reading about an 88-year-old Holocaust survivor who had had to shelter um, in place in, in one of the kibbutz for eight hours while the attack was was underway. And when she came out, she found that her whole family almost had been taken hostage, including two of her young grandchildren. And I, I don't think that these kinds of stories resonate today with Palestinians because they're too busy with their own grief. Yep. And that same morning, I'm sitting for breakfast with a friend of mine who we're just talking generally about what is happening and what might happen in Lebanon. And remember, we're in Le Lebanon where, where, you know, we're we're wondering whether war might erupt tomorrow. And I didn't know her mother was Palestinian. And she tells me about this terribly sad story that, uh, sorry, this terribly sad conversation that she'd had with her mother for the first time the night before, who'd opened up about what it was like to leave, you know, in the middle of the night, another one of those examples not knowing where uh, where they were going, leaving everything behind. And she's one of those women who has, you know, managed to do quite well in the end. But it's also been a very sad life because then she had to live through Lebanon's civil war, various Israeli attacks, invasions, etc. Lebanon's economic crisis, the port blast, lost all her savings. And my friend said, you know, my mom had this just one comment that it suddenly dawned on her that her life had been 
so sad. And I thought that was just devastating from another, you know, an 88-year-old woman. You know, these two mirroring uh, um, lives, realities, and, and nobody at this point able to listen to the other. I mean, not these two women in particular, but generally. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, that's I'm afraid pretty... I killed the conversation there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I, I, I... I, I do want to end on a slightly more more positive okay. note, if I may. Maybe it's not a realistic one, but but you know, we, we are always looking for hope, especially in this country. Otherwise, you don't survive 15 years of civil war. And I do think that in the background, even though people are not ready for it today, the diplomacy is is underway. And even if the diplomacy is not ready for it yet right this moment. Um, and the immediate concerns are ceasefire, hostages, uh, aid, etc. There clearly is some thinking going on about what next, what after Gaza, what about a Palestinian uh, state? And we heard President Biden talk about that. And, and we're hearing more people in the Arab world also talking about that. I mean, I sat down with somebody close to the thinking of one of the main Shia parties in, in, in Lebanon, who are usually all about, you know, and I thought they'd be, you know, all riled up about Israel and spewing, you know, anger at America for not calling for, for a ceasefire. And, and I had a very surprising conversation with this person. He said, you know, we, we, we need to go back to two-state. We need to go back to this conversation. And no, of course, the Americans can't call for a ceasefire now because, you know, it's not going to work. They need someone else to to call for a ceasefire, the UN or the Brazilians. And, you know, we need... And I just thought, I think people have suddenly come so close to the abyss that they've... The reasonable ones, or even some of those who sounded unreasonable before... And I'm not talking about Hamas, uh, have taken a step back to think, my goodness, we're we're really quite close to um all out war. And I think even the Iranians have come to this realization, uh, going back to the point that that I was making, that their first and foremost uh, 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 priority is the survival of their own regime. and and they're not suicidal. The point is not, all out war, you know, and and go down in flames. At least, you know, I I, I don't think so. Um, and so, I, I want to hold on to to those voices coming from sometimes surprising quarters, voices we haven't heard in a very long time, calling for peace. I would love to think you're right, Kim, and I think you might be. I I I hold on to my belief that there's a great deal happening behind the scenes. There's a great deal of talking going on behind the scenes. Um, I don't have hope that it will manifest itself in anything positive happening in the immediate short term. But all wars end, all conflicts end. Some take a very long time to end. Some take a little less time to end. But I don't think there can be any doubt that we are going through a very, very dark phase in the region's history. I just want to say that as a cynic who had long since abandoned the idea of two states, I kind of agree with Kim. And I think that the thousands already dead and the more to come, unfortunately, make it clear that the only way to get get this situation sorted 
is through two states. It's kind of revived it. And if, as I'm reliably told by my contacts in Israel, it's the end of Bibi Netanyahu, well, so much the better. Anyway, listen, um, what I want to say is, first of all, you're both brilliant talkers. And sadly, because I know the crisis is going to continue for a while, I hope you'll make time to come back and we can assess the next a month, two months from now, and see where we're at. How's that? Is that possible? Of course. Of course. Of course. Okay. Robin Lustig and Kim Gattis, thank you both very, very much. Thank you for Thanks, having Michael. us. Thanks. Great to chat Thanks. to both of you. Great to see you again, Robin. Likewise. Yeah, you too, Kim. And Th- you, take Michael. Care. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Kim Gattis and Robin Lustig. If you value this kind of calm, informed conversation, and believe me, in these times, they are very rare, please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation so I can keep doing this work, including further conversations with Kim and Robin. Thanks.